Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, our guest is the New York Times bestselling author, Richard Preston, class of 76. Welcome, Richard. It's good to have you with us, uh, kind of with us, well, <laughs> as much nice with us with as you. it's possible to be these days. It's great to be with you guys. Good to be um, in Pomona College virtually. Yeah, uh, I, I should start this off by saying this is being recorded on April 22nd at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, this must be a particularly strange time for you, Richard, because you've been ringing the alarm bell about about emerging viruses and the the possibility of pandemics for a long time, ever since um, the hot zone. Um, and as we've seen, unfortunately, very few people currently in power seem to have been listening, um, at least in this country. Um, so, um, you know, some people are saying this is the healthcare equivalent of a 500-year flood. Is that true? Actually, not true at all. Um, it, uh, we've often heard it said that this is a 100-year event, um, but it's not at all. Um, in fact, it's part of a pattern of these emerging viruses, uh, viruses that are leaking out of the Earth's ecosystems and invading the human species. And it's been happening more and more frequently. And these outbreaks have been ballooning much more rapidly. Uh, we have to step back and take a look at the big picture of nature itself and the relationship of the human species to nature. So uh, for a long time now, uh, the world has faced these epidemics and pandemics that seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, and just to give you some examples, um, the AIDS virus, HIV, which uh, is th thought now to have uh, made a jump from a wild animal, perhaps a chimpanzee, into one person somewhere around the year 1910 on a tributary of the Congo River in Central Africa. And the virus, once it made that transition from its animal host into a human, um, it evolved rapidly and then began to spread inexorably until HIV has gone around the world. Now, with coronavirus, this is the third uh, trend species jump of a coronavirus into the human species in recent years. The two previous ones were the SARS virus and the MERS virus, and now uh, the one that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. So this is what's happening. And uh, I think maybe the question is, why is it happening? And why is it happening? You know, it's, it's something that I think about. Uh, it's something that uh, scientists are really putting their minds to. Um, and there's a lot of debate about it. Um, but maybe I can just uh, throw in my two bits or try to get some clarity on it. Uh, the viruses are everywhere in nature. Everything that lives that's made of cells gets infected with its own viruses. Everything from bacteria to blue whales. Uh, the, the world of the viruses 
as distinct from the world of truly living organisms that are made of cells. The world of the viruses could be termed the virusphere. You heard this, you hear this term. Uh, and it's distinct from the biosphere. Uh, the virusphere and the biosphere interpenetrate each other like milk in tea or like mist in air. Uh, they are essential to each other. But the virusphere, the universe of viruses may be much older than the biosphere. Viruses may be, we don't know, representatives of the earliest forms of life on the planet. Now a virus is a little very tiny capsule made of proteins and it has some genetic code at the center of it. It has the capacity to make copies of itself, but it must make copies of itself inside the cell of a living organism, a host. Uh, so viruses are parasites. Now, one of a virus's best strategies, so to speak, for long-term survival is to change species, change host species. They do this frequently. Uh, and so, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, with humans, we, we have, we're biologically fairly similar to lots of other mammals. And so a virus that, that colonizes some kind of mammal can fairly easily leak into a human being, a body somewhere. Now, the, the current coronavirus looks like it probably came from a bat that lives in caves in China. Uh, recently, uh, an American team working with Chinese colleagues did a survey of the bats of China that live in caves, and they found about 500 distinct coronaviruses. They're all basically viruses that give a bat a cold. They're not very bad for bats. Uh, but um, every now and then, these viruses can make that transition and find their way into a human body, which is apparently what happened in Wuhan, China, in about probably mid-November uh, of last year. And scientists studying the genetic code of the coronavirus uh, have concluded that this pandemic began with exactly one human being. One person catches a bat sniffle, and months later, the entire global economy has a heart attack. And it's not the last time this is going to happen, nor is it the first time. So I guess, you know, the next question is, what lessons should we be learning from this? And, I, you know, most importantly, when this is over, you know, what should we be doing? to prepare for the next one. Um, if you were the world's emerging virus czar, what would you do? Well, first of all, I, I, I try to look carefully at what, what le lessons can we learn from this. And I happen to be something of an optimist about ourselves, about the human species, and about our, our future on the planet. We have a lot of problems and we've created a lot of problems, but we also have an uncanny ability to uh, shift our behavior and uh, humans are nothing if not adaptable so with every crisis there also comes an opportunity and right in the depths of this pandemic i think we can we can productively ask the question how can we turn this dreadful situation to our advantage what can we do uh, to make life better for all of us and the answer is, uh, there are actually some pretty simple answers to this. First of all, it ought to be 
completely obvious to everybody by now that public health is a matter of national security uh, of the highest order. And so whatever we invest now in public health as a society, in our government, in private industry, is money very well spent, and we will get a huge return on investments like this. When when the when one person catches a bat sniffle, and it costs the, the planet at least seventeen trillion dollars in lost economic activity, almost anything that you spend on public health is going to be worth it. The first thing, and a very simple thing, we can do is just invest more in surveillance, disease surveillance. Uh, and uh, find ways to encourage governments to be honest about what happens when a new virus is coming out. Uh, uh, everybody's life is at stake, basically. Uh, uh, so for example, uh, my most recent book, Crisis in the Red Zone, is about the Ebola epidemic in West Africa that happened in 2014. And uh, I focus on a small, completely forgotten hospital in West Africa, which was devastated by Ebola. Many of the medical staff died in the line of duty. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible, but also um, impressive story of heroism. And uh, there were a, a handful of Americans understood that the crisis in this small, forgotten African hospital was actually a crisis for everybody in North America. Uh, because we're all connected as a species uh, and a virus that is emerging one place can get anywhere very fast. So surveillance is gonna be critical. And then the next thing that I think we can do, and this is very feasible, is to invest in general platforms for the rapid development of vaccines and new kinds of antiviral drugs that can act very effectively on a, a new emerging virus. And you can, you can start research on, on these viruses even before an individual virus comes out. So for about 25, 30 years, there has been research on a vaccine for coronaviruses. Uh, a few, a handful of far-seeing scientists recognize coronaviruses as one of the more profound threats to public health. And uh, you know, for 30 years now, there has been a certain amount of development work on vaccines for them. And this development work is now paying off hugely. So that's what we can do. Um, and then finally, uh, it's a matter of public education uh, and of strengthening uh, healthcare systems around the world and in the United States. We need to um, make sure that uh, everybody gets proper access to decent healthcare and that, um, that public health is strengthened around the world, even in places where public health is practically non-existent, where you know, medical treatment is really hard to come by. Um, there are kind of simple things you can do. Um, so at the moment, um, I'm investing in this little hospital in Africa, this Kenema government hospital in Sierra Leone, and I'm providing funds for the training of nurses and I figure, and these are public health nurses, and I figure that you know, even an individual can help out. And if you train one or two nurses, whatever you can afford, uh, then those people will go on for an entire career benefiting people in public health. So these are the kinds of things we can do. And uh, you know, in the end, it boils down to recognizing that we're, we're all uh, getting boiled in the pot together. Richard, we'll come back to this 
um, a little later, um, but we want to take you back to the 70s. Both you and your brother, Doug, who, by the way, is also a best-selling author, um, came to Pomona College from the East Coast. What brought you to Pomona and what was your experience like? Oh, no, you would have to ask this question. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, um, I did not have a distinguished high school record. I grew up in uh, the the lovely Republican town of Wellesley, Massachusetts, and uh, where Doug and I and our other youngest brother, David, were, um, well, let's just say we were on a first-name basis with some of the town police officers. And uh, I, I insisted, my parents wanted to send me to a private school. I insisted in staying in the public high school because that's where my friends were. Um, very few of my friends went on to college. I was very happy in that peer group. And we were a countercultural clique, I guess. Um, we were weird. And uh, anyway, um, I had disciplinary problems on my record, which included, I'm very sorry to say this, an assault on a teacher. And I, I didn't hurt the guy. Um, it was a protest. And I tried to push past him. And in doing so, I grabbed his arm. Now, under law, that is an ass- You're interfering with somebody's right of movement. And there's no two ways around that. So I got into massive trouble for that. I think um, I was nearly expelled, uh, was suspended for two weeks. And then I had to serve, I think, 30 after-school detentions. And, uh, and then when I got around to applying to colleges, I, I completely got hosed. I got rejected from every school I applied to. Uh, and in which case, I, so then I declared to my parents that I was just going to get a job. I was going to work, and I didn't need to go to college. Well, I had an aunt on the West Coast who was a professor at Berkeley, and she was freaking out about this. And so anyway, at her expense, she flew me out to California and she took me to see, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and then the font group. And of all the schools I, I saw, I liked uh, Pomona the best. I really liked Pomona a lot. Um, and by that time, I was getting awfully tired of working at my job in Boston. So, um, uh, but by then it was, well, you know, college acceptances go out in April. And it was now late June. And uh, I'm like, gee, I'd really like to go to college. I'd really like to go to Pomona College. So I just like sent an application in late, like ultra late. And uh, then, you know, of course, I got, you know, a little tiny letter very fast back saying it's too late. And, you know, so (laughs) then I did something. Now, I hate to say this. the, the dean of admission at the time was uh, Jack Quinlan, a wonderful human being. He was a fantastic guy. And uh, so uh, um, anyway, that was back in the days when you could make a collect a telephone call. And collect calls were expensive. They ran about yeah. 20 bucks from Boston, right? And, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. nowadays in the age of cell phones, people don't even know about this, but you get an operator on the phone and then the operator would call up the person you're calling. Will you like, accept? Yeah. Yes. So, so <laughs> will you accept a collect call from Mr. Dick Preston in Massachusetts? And Dean Quinlan goes, yes, I'll accept it. So I, so I got him on the wow. phone. I said, um, now, uh, Dean Quinlan, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to bother you, but like, um, 
Like, you know, I know you guys have already like rejected me, but, um, and I know it's kind of late, but like, I'm, I just had a question for you. Like you guys ever, um, change your minds? (laughs) (laughs) And and Dean Quinlan was, he was very nice about it. And he said, no, no, um, you know, we, we don't do that. Um, our policy is our policy. And then I go, well, I got one more question for you. Um, like, okay, so I'm, I'm really sorry to, to keep bothering you, but like, is there any chance that your policy could change in the near <laughs> to intermediate future? <laughs> and he goes, no, like, no, no. There, there's no, there's no chance that our policy will change. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you. And I really appreciate your time. And, uh, and then, uh, and then I let a week go by. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to call him again. <laughs> so I reversed the charges on him again. And now he's in, now he's in 40 bucks because he accepted. <laughs> Dick Preston is calling from Massachusetts. Will you accept the charges? And he's like, okay. And so <laughs> Dean Quinlan, look, I'm really sorry. This is Dick Preston from Massachusetts. I, I'm really sorry, you know, to, to, to bother you about this. But um, like I was just checking in with you to find out if um, – if your policy maybe has changed or maybe there's any chance that it might change. And he goes, no, no, the policy hasn't changed, but you know, thank you for your interest in Pomona college. And, uh, and then I did it again. I let a few days go by. Now he's in like 60 bucks, you know, $20. And it's like, I can just imagine, you know, this is a little off color, but I can imagine him maybe remarking in the office, Oh no, it's that dick from Massachusetts again. <laughs> so anyway, he's calling um, again. And finally, I, I called him four or five times. I don't know, but I, I just didn't give up. I, I, I felt at this point there was nothing to lose. And finally, he goes, um, "Well, now, 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 Dick, um, um, you know, you're really very interested in Pomona College, and we do value." you know, commitment. And I was able, I think, to articulate to him why I wanted to go to Pomona College, you know, why I wasn't interested in Stanford, I wasn't interested in Berkeley. It's because it was faculty contact. Um, It was a smaller place where you could really get to know the faculty and you could study hard. And I told him, you know, I'm I'm really sick of my job. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to go to college and I really want to, you know, study, you know, I'm really into that. And, uh, and so finally he goes, okay, well now, now, now Dick, I just want to tell you the policy is not changing. However, um, (laughs) we're, we're, you're on the waiting list. (laughs) 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 And then very shortly afterward, they informed me that I could join, uh, uh, in February. Oh, yeah. I started. So so the moral (laughs) The moral is persistence <laughs> does sometimes pay off. <laughs> well, yeah, um, but there's a little bit of a downside, which is at some point I was invited to give a commencement address at Pomona and into Dean Jack Quinlan, who had by then, I guess he'd moved to the development office at Princeton, where he, um, he was one of the architects of the, the famous and incredibly effective Pomona plan. And, uh, and I told that story, a shorter version of it in, in the, my commencement address. And Dean Quinlan says to me, Richard, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Do you know how many calls I'm going to get now from people who got rejected from Pomona? 
<laughs> well, I was just thinking that the the current dean may may really thank you too. <laughs> Policy hasn't changed. Policy hasn't Policy changed. Policy has not changed. Yeah. Everybody out there, listeners, no. Policy hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> Oh um, my goodness, too funny. So, um, did you know, Richard, that you wanted to write when you first came to Pomona, or did that happen somewhere along the way or afterward? Well, it sort of happened partly at Pomona College. Um, I originally intended to be a visual artist, um, and I took art courses and loved them at Pomona. Uh, I also got deeply into art history. I took some art history courses, um, did well in them, and loved it. Um, I should say that. Um, Doug and I come from a family of art historians, and our late mother uh, was a painter and an art historian. She was a gifted artist. So um, it was kind of in our blood. Uh, but somewhere along the line, I started thinking about using words um, as another way of conveying images and um, doing something creative. And I fell in with um, uh, Darcy O'Brien, an author who was then a professor of English at Pomona. Darcy later had a really distinguished career in writing. He's no longer alive. Uh, but he, uh, his first novel, uh, A Way of Life Like Any Other, which is a, a thinly veiled memoir of his growing up in Hollywood as the son of two incredibly famous film stars, uh, that won the Hemingway Award uh, for best first novel. And Darcy was reading parts of it out loud to us, his students, in his creative writing courses. So uh, Darcy really introduced me to the idea of, of excellent writing. Uh, there were others as well. There was uh, the late Professor Martha Andresen and um, Professor Ed Copeland. Um, so the English department at Pomona um, really formed me, really shaped me. Uh, and I, I credit the English department for for moving me in the direction of uh, creative writing. Um, and um, uh, and then when I when I graduated, you know, as this English major, Darcy persuaded me to go to graduate school uh, to do a PhD in English. And his theory was, well, you can do two years at a place like Princeton, which is where I ended up. And then, you know, you can get out before you have to write the PhD, uh, just do two years and then, you know, go off and write. Um, when I ended up at Princeton, um, I, I had always conceived of myself as if I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a novelist, right? You write fiction. That's considered, I think, even to this day, it's considered the, you know, the highest literary form other than poetry in terms of um, cultural ascendancy. However, um, at Princeton, I, I, um, I ended up taking an undergraduate course in writing from John McPhee, the author. And McPhee is, you know, he's an he's a incredibly gifted writer of nonfiction who also happens to be a very gifted teacher. And I think uh, McPhee, who keeps statistics on everything, tells me that um, about 55 to 60% of the graduates of his course and on to become either professional writers or professional editors in publishing. And uh, so in that course, I learned a lot about the techniques of nonfiction writing. And 
it became perfectly obvious to me that that the, the nonfiction writer can can approach and enter into worlds that are as persuasive and deep and as as exploratory of the human condition as any fiction. Uh, there are certain limitations in nonfiction writing, but then there are limitations in fiction too. And one of the great limitations in fiction is that um, it's this idea of the um, uh, the contract between the reader and the and the writer, and it's an unspoken contract uh, known as the willing suspension of disbelief. So when you're reading fiction, like let's say you're reading uh, Lord of the Rings, for the time when you're immersed in the book, you you have a willing suspension of disbelief, and you believe in Middle Earth, you believe in these characters. Um, but then when you finish the book and it's all over, you have to return to the world of reality. Whereas in nonfiction writing, um, uh, the contact with the writer is, um, the writer is like, like vis-a-vis the reader, the, the deal is, okay, um, I, as the writer, I'm going to give you as closely as I can make it uh, the actual, the actuality and the truth of the story and all the characters you're reading about are real. And when I'm presenting you with their thoughts or their inner emotions, this is based on reporting and it's repeatable. Um, it's scientific in the sense that if you interviewed this person again, you would get much the same description of what their experiences were. Uh, and so that the reader doesn't have to suspend disbelief. The reader can actually believe in these events. And that can touch the human heart, it can touch your emotions, and it can touch your mind in a way that fiction cannot. So for example, um, in the hot zone, which is the book about an eruption of Ebola virus near Washington, DC, um, we have, you know, we have events that really occurred. And when you're reading it, um, there are some really scary scenes in the hot zone. When you're reading it, you have to come to terms with the fact that this is real, that these people, that this disease exists, and it could it could get to me too. So Richard, I you know I'm I have to confess I'm a I've been a I was a big fan of your books long before I came to Pomona. Um, I loved uh, First Light and American Steel, and but the Hot Zone was you know maybe the most gripping thing I'd ever read to that point. I. How do you how do you work? Can you give us a little glimpse of how you actually do your work? Yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about that. In fact, I want to tell you uh, a story about my book, First Light, which is about astronomy, and it's about the astronomers at the Palomar Observatory. That book began with a class in astronomy at Pomona College. Uh, Robert Chambers was the name of the professor. He taught astronomy. And we had a field trip to the great Palomar Telescope on Palomar Mountain. It's this giant behemoth of a telescope that was built in the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, and it was, at the time, one of the greatest engineering feats in history. And to this day, it remains a powerful and beautiful telescope. So Professor Chambers took us there, and I walked around that telescope. And I, I found it to be a, a magnificent, transcendent experience seeing this thing. And then learning about the, the, the scope, the size of the universe, and the, 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 
microscopic quality of the earth itself. Um, you know, it, the earth is just a speck of dust in the galaxy. And if it were to disappear tomorrow, it would not be missed. So um, that, that was what led to it. And eventually I ended up um, spending night after night at the Palomar telescope with a team of astronomers who were looking as far out into space and time as, as possible using this instrument. They were looking at quasars, um, which are essentially black holes that have caught, caught fire gravitationally. These are gravitational fires burning at the edge of the universe and at the beginning of time. And uh, what could be more magnificent than this quest? So one of the astronomers was uh, a certain Martin Schmidt, a very distinguished older man who uh, was credited as the discoverer of the nature of quasars using that very telescope. Uh, he's a courtly, tall, aristocratic gentleman from the Netherlands. He always dressed in a jacket and tie when he was at the observatory. He was old school, or maximum old school. Um, and then uh, and as the night wears on at the telescope and the astronomers are, are in the control room and they're looking at video screens of galaxies, you know, drifting past, uh, Martin Schmidt would disappear. He'd go up and vanish. And uh, at some point I said to the astronomers, um, what's wrong with Martin? Does he have stomach trouble or something? I thought maybe he was disappearing into the lavatory. And they go, no, 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 he's up walking on the catwalk. He does this once in a while. So I thought, hmm. And Martin had not been all that communicative with me, you know. So I got my notebook. I, 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 by the way, I, I don't use a tape recorder. I, I, I use an old fashioned reporter's notebook with a pencil. I find that to be the best. And the reason it's the best, well, the story will maybe illustrate it. So I go up on the catwalk. And I find Martin just silently circling the dome on this catwalk, um, walking always counterclockwise in silence and looking up at the stars. And so I began to follow him. Um, what else do you do as a reporter? And uh, I, you know, I, then I began asking him questions. Um, so why, why do you go up here? What do you think about? And it was one of those moments where your subject, you find your subject disarmed, and it's, it can often be a gentle, quiet moment, and one subject can be very reflective. And Martin became, became reflective, and he talked about his childhood. He talked about um, his thoughts as he walked counterclockwise around the dome, and he was thinking simultaneously about you know, uh, these great fires burning in the edge of the universe. And at the same time, thinking about the constellations, he was the only astronomer I met who could name and identify the constellations in the sky. Uh, the others, you know, are concentrated on objects that have numbers attached to them. So uh, at any rate, and then I, I, I ended up doing that as an interior monologue in first light, where I just go inside his head and I describe the stream of his thoughts as he's walking around and around this dome. And then I read it all out loud to Martin. Uh, and he offered many substantial sensitive changes until what we had in nonfiction was a lack of uh, a person thinking and what they're thinking about. Hmm. That's 
That's great. Um, Richard, let's talk about a little bit more about the Hot Zone, which was made recently into a miniseries from National Geographic yeah. with the help of a fellow alum, Linda yeah. Ops, class of 72. I know there's quite a story behind that as well. Can you tell us what happened and how that happened? Well, sure. Um, uh, the book, The Hot Zone, began as an, a long New Yorker article, which attracted a lot of attention from producers in Hollywood. And it sparked a, a war, a studio war between Warner Brothers and Fox. And Warner Brothers, there was a huge producer there named Arnold Copelson, uh, who had, uh, you know, he won an Academy Award for Platoon, which he was producer of. And, and he signed up um, Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo, and Morgan Freeman to do a big picture on a big virus, really patterned after the, the hot zone. And then Linda Obst uh, was very interested in doing the hot zone itself. So this guy Copelson and Linda got into a huge battle with each other for the rights to the magazine article and later the book. And I ended up talking with both of them on the phone. Uh, Arnold Copelson was a classic cigar chewing old school producer. You know, I once met him in his office which was in the Die Hard building in Los Angeles. That's the building that got blown up in the movie Die Hard, only it didn't mm -hmm. get blown up. Arnold mm -hmm. lived there. And he's sitting in this <laughs> giant chair and he's got a gold ring on and a blue suit. And he's smoking a cigar and he says, actually, my brother Doug and I were both meeting him. And he, well, if it isn't the Preston brothers, what have you got for me today? <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. So anyway, and then there was Linda Obst calling me on the phone, wanting the rights to the hot zone. And she was a totally different story. Um, her background was as a, a journalist at the New York Times Magazine. And she was a Pomona alum. And she was, unlike Arnold Copelson, she was cruelly smart, really bright. And uh, eventually I came down to the idea that... Um, in order to get this this movie made, uh, I was going to have to have I was going to have to tie into a warrior, uh, a producer who could who could do battle and who could cut throats effectively, and that was Linda Obst. And she she at one point she said, "I'm going to go mano a mano with Arnold Copelson," <laughs> and I loved that. And, and so so there were really two reasons for going with Linda. One was that she was Pomona, and the other was that she was female. And I really wanted to have, I wanted to have a female, I wanted to have a woman producer. Um, women producers, the big powerful ones are extremely rare in Hollywood, but uh, I just wanted, I, I wanted to be on the right side there. So anyway, then Linda in fact lost the studio war. Uh, the Fox project, um, Fox spent $11 million. They actually built the sets. And then the whole thing collapsed when Jodie Foster and Robert Redford could not agree on a screenplay. And, you know, and I, I was hearing on the phone from various players in the project, and it was just a train wreck. It was magnificent, unbelievable, you know, a freight train falling into a canyon. That's what it was. And, you know, it was just incredible, terrible. But then Linda wouldn't give it up. And year after year, every now and then I'd hear from her, well, you know, we've got so-and-so on the line and we're going to get a new screenplay, blah, blah, blah. And then finally, finally, she got this deal with National Geographic. Turned out to be a great thing. 
And uh, as Colonel Nancy Jack said to me, you know, th this should have been a television series all along. Nancy and I agreed on that early in the process. And then after the, the series was finally made and was a big success for National Geographic, um, I said to Linda, you know, um, we could say that this was an odyssey and that you were Odysseus, but in fact, Odysseus was only at sea for 20 years and you've been at sea with this one for 25. Richard, the um, you mentioned your latest book, uh, Crisis in the Red Zone. Um, the when I mean, at the end of of the hot zone, you you ended it with a line that was uh, very ominous. Um, we'll be back, and uh, it was. And a lot of people thought for a long time. I think that because of the way Ebola. Um, was communicated, it probably wouldn't make, you know, for a pandemic, but then we really saw the potential for that in West Africa. Um, how, how frightened should we be of Ebola still? Well, I think Ebola is a very big concern. And as one of the scientists said to me, uh, while I was researching the hot zone, that was more than 25 years ago, he said, you know, we don't really know what Ebola has done in the past, and we don't know what it will do in the future. But uh, there, there developed a belief among Ebola experts, public health experts, that uh, Ebola was, uh, there, it had this mythic quality. It was supposedly too hot to be able to successfully establish itself in the human species that the virus would, quote, burn itself out when it got into people. It was just, quote, too deadly. Um, and then, it, as it turned out, um, the Ebola outbreaks were in village settings where people were not densely crowded. And uh, Doctors Without Borders developed a method for suppressing Ebola quickly. And so, um, in the end, um, some public health figures were claiming that the hot zone was um, just scaremongering by a journalist who didn't know anything about public health and science. Uh, and then there was this very comfortable belief that Ebola was really not a threat, not much of an issue, easy to handle, not very contagious, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, but the truth of the matter is that often, that nature often does whatever is necessary to make the most number of experts wrong. <laughs> And all those statements about Ebola turned out to be myths. They were, they were part of a belief system by scientists. Scientists and doctors have their belief systems too. And, uh, but Mother Nature has a way of overturning belief systems. And so it turned out that when Ebola got into cities, as it did in West Africa, it was about as contagious as seasonal flu. So not quite as contagious as our coronavirus now, but wickedly difficult to handle once it gets into crowded places. Richard, this coronavirus pandemic has coincided with another pandemic we've been dealing with for a while now, one of disinformation and mistrust of experts of all stripes, including media. Um, do you think we could have handled this crisis better if um, if that didn't happen? Is, or is that maybe not possible in this post-truth era we're living right now? Well, I think journalists have to be rededicated to their mission, their goals. Some journalists have become corrupted 
by access to power. Power is intoxicating and you can see it in uh, some of the hosts on Fox News who seem to be utterly intoxicated with their ability to influence President Donald Trump and the actions of the White House, the executive branch. Um, but that isn't really journalism. That's uh, a form of uh, drunkenness. It's, it's drunkenness power, uh, and it's reveling in that. Uh, that's one source of uh, false narratives in journalism. But yeah, I mean, the internet has made it much more difficult to you know, to to separate truth from non-truth. But the the journalists who stick to their jobs and who, you know, who many of whom are willing to sacrifice everything, including their lives, um, to to present the truth to the public, um, they should be applauded. Um, I regard journalists like that as heroes. Uh, I don't consider myself a particularly courageous individual, but Journalists who work in countries where they can be killed for what they write or what they present on television and media um, are um, the real heroes of this. And I, I do have faith. Uh, I think, uh, I think um, you know, it's a faith born perhaps on John Milton's endorsement of the liberty of speech that um, that with free speech comes responsibilities, but but that also the public does have the ability to sort truth from fiction, even if it takes time. And I don't particularly think that the American people over the long run are easily fooled. Richard, we've talked about coronavirus and Ebola. Are there other... Um emerging viruses that we already know about that we should be thinking about and preparing for? I'm sorry you asked. (laughs) 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 Yeah, there's one in particular that uh, uh, makes me a little nervous. It's called Nipah, N-I-P-A-H. It's a a close relative of the measles virus. Measles is wildly contagious. It's much more contagious than COVID. Uh, yeah. Um, so Nipah is a bat virus. Uh, it has been leaking into humans in Southeast Asia. Uh, it, uh, it's get, gets into the human body through the lungs and then it migrates to the brain where it causes personality changes, spotty liquefaction of the brain and death. Now, um, because it's a relative of measles, it appears to have um, the ability to change. Uh, there may be other nipahs out there in nature that we don't know anything about. Um, but the thing that really chills me is the thought that you could get a fully aerosolized or airborne form of nipah where people are you know, getting it in their lungs and then they're having personality changes and then their brains are melting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you asked too, Mark. <laughs> but in fact, um, but Nepal is in fact on the radar screen of public health doctors who think and worry about the next one. And that's why, for example, um, I don't know what's going on with vaccine development, but I think it would be a really good idea to have platforms of the kind that I mentioned um, focusing on Nepal and its relatives 
for um, uh, development of kind of backbone development of vaccines and antiviral drugs. So there are measles uh, vaccines, so maybe it's one that can be prevented with a vaccine. Yeah, the measles vaccine would never work on Nipah. Right. But um, but it, but vaccine development for Nipah could happen now because, in fact, it may be happening, but I doubt there's very much money going into it. But, you know, there are people who are dying of Nipah right as we speak. And uh, and so when you have human subjects, um, you have people infected, you have viral strains that you can work with in a laboratory. Richard, do you, are, can you tell us um, a project or a couple of projects you're working on, or is that top secret? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I have to confess, I'm not going to be <laughs> writing any more books about viruses for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, there seems like there's plenty of content for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly don't, yeah. I don't have it in me to write about the coronavirus. Um, you know, it's it's a dreadful situation, but I, I feel that I, I'm not sure I could really contribute. In a meaningful way to that story. Uh, so I've got other things in mind. Um, actually, uh, some children's books, just for the heck of it. You know. I'm looking forward to those. Thank you. I have toddlers. Oh, good. Well, and I can guarantee you that in my children's books, there won't be anybody dying with a bloody nose. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So on that note, um, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, we've been talking with author Richard Preston, class of 1976. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Oh, it's been, it's been great fun. to be with you. Good luck. Thank be you, well Richard. Stay safe. Thank you. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe. And until next time.